This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com forward slash B-E. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to today's episode of the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. I'm Ross Romano, and as always, we really hope this interview with an educator author is going to provide you with transformative knowledge that's going to strengthen your work immediately. Uh, And I'm really pleased to have with us today Matt Renwick, and Matt's author of a couple of new books that we're actually going to talk about, Leading Like a Coach, which is available from Corwin, and Resist the Script, which is a self-published ebook. and these are Matt's third and fourth books, respectively. Matt is an elementary school principal in Mineral Point, Wisconsin. He's also a former assistant principal, teacher, coach, and athletic director. Um, Matt, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks, Ross. It's an honor. Uh, Good to be here. And let me just, I'll just jump right out by reading through, you know, leading like a coach and our listeners will be able to see the information on the book in the show notes, you know, coach is spelled out as an acronym. So you have your five principles around this and it's create confidence through trust, organize around a priority, affirm promising practices, communicate feedback and help teachers become leaders and learners. And if folks pick up the book, they'll see that there is a graphical representation of this where the help teachers become leaders and learners piece sits right in the center and the other four kind of surround that. Um, so let's start right there. Uh, like, why is that the the primary emphasis that that bullseye on the target to help teachers become better leaders and learners? Well, the idea came about, I think in 2018-19, I was taking an instructional coaching course um, through a local university, and um, it, the course was based on cognitive coaching, uh, Garmson and Costa, and just learning the skills and embedding it in my practice. I said, I just this just feels like a real answer for principals and any leader who struggle with just doing evaluations and just supervision and, and coming in and judging, judging, um, or just coming in classrooms and saying, "Hey, you know, and where's that middle point where we can actually facilitate growth?" So. Um, the acronym itself is just 
almost like a, a theory of practice in a sense. Like I wanted, I wanted to treat leadership not just as being a manager um, or kind of balcony level leadership, but actually um, in the classroom kind of leadership. And these were five strategies that came out of learning more about coaching that I feel any leader could use. And so I wanted to make them very actionable and practical um, that uh, leaders can take with them and actually use. So um, just as a teacher has their practice, their set of tools in their toolkit, I wanted to give some tools to to leaders too to to just be more effective. Excellent. And and we won't get into all of them today, but I definitely want to dive into a few here. Um, And one that really stands out to me is affirm promising practices. And as you describe it, you know, we create the environment for change by noting where we're already successful. And um, as I see it, and as I kind of observe and evaluate, uh, not just education, but a lot of, um, you know, businesses and industries going on, there's a couple of steps to it, right? One is, you have to commit to understanding what's already happening, period, Um, which I think often we don't even make it that far. And if somebody has an idea for a change or a quote unquote innovation, but it it's not tethered to current context. And then within that, what's working now, uh, what isn't working and let's reinforce what's working really well. Let's see where we can build on that. And then also let's, you know, see what we need to do differently. So, um, for, you know, why is this one so important to you? Is it something that you observed maybe wasn't, you know, happening uh, as frequently as it needs to um, talk, talk us through this. Yeah. So when I first became an administrator 15 years ago, and, you know, we, I was just tasked with evaluating class classroom teachers coming in a couple times a year and then doing our, um, a rubric based uh, observation. And I just, I felt like I was just getting to know, you know, about that teacher, about their classroom as I was done. And then I would get into, even a couple of times, the teachers would connect with me because I'd have to rate them, you know, and I don't believe I'm a two, for example, in assessment. So, well, this is the evidence I've got. And um, in the beginning, I, you know, I wanted to be more right and just say, here's the rubric and I, you know, kind of shut down conversation. And I, as I thought more about it, you know, like you said, Ross, we're really, I'm not really, I'm only seeing a small, small fraction of what actually happens in there. So how can I get in there? Like you said, to learn and to understand and just understand the context. Um, and then I came across Reggie Routman's work and you know Reggie from mm-hmm. ASCD and, and we got to work with her uh, and her professional development series. And she was a big proponent of instructional walks but you're just coming in and focusing first on strengths and learning from the classroom. So I started doing those and this was probably about 10 years ago. And my evaluations just turned, it was a 180 degree change. I just, I knew the classroom so well that there was no guessing about what I'd come in and see that day um, because of all my prior visits, which weren't evaluative necessarily. They were more just learning what's going on and, um, so I felt like I was a better supervisor as well as an instructional leader. Um, so that's that was the first part is just to understand. And then, like you mentioned, to affirm, really wanting to be intentional about my visits. You know, it's what I hear from principals. Like the number one reason they don't come in is uh, one of the reasons anyway is I don't know what I'm going to do in there. Um, you know, so we really 
focused on instructional frameworks, which describe those practices we want to see. Um, they're, they're pretty flexible so teachers can adapt them to their classroom. But, you know, for example, self-directed learners, um, level of questioning, student engagement, and then even descriptors beyond that. And that give us, the school, but especially the language to then articulate what they were doing and why it was impactful for kids. So I would say, for example, oh, I noticed all of your kids are reading independently and 50% uh, of the kids have pulled books from your classrooms. Clearly you're making, you know, independent reading and choice a priority in your classroom. And then I might follow up with a question such as, you know, what are you noticing about, about this interaction between the kids in the classroom library? And we would just talk practice. And um, the more I did that, the more kind of our positions fell away. We got into more of a just felt like we we're just talking as colleagues. And um, that's also a tough thing too, because we have these positions of authority. And, and how do you how do you balance that, I guess? And well, that's still something I'm exploring, but I'm really just trying to take a more integrated and really a mindful approach to, to school leadership. Yeah, I think that's a great approach. And, and you referenced uh, Rigi Routman in that response and, and Rigi wrote the foreword to this book. Um, and one of the things that stood out to me and I think relates back to this concept of a firm promising practices so that we know where we're going next is, is she writes, that uh, you know, through the book, you re-envision the role of the principal as supportive guide, active listener, learner, teacher, and opportunity creator. Um, and I think even in your last answer, you kind of touched, uh, you know, and spoke around this learner teacher concept and how the principal's kind of, you know, finding that right role in instruction, which I know is a big part of your approach. Um, you know, kind of one of the things I wanted to ask you about this and this re-envisioning is, what are some of the common elements of, I guess, the principal role as it's traditionally enacted that you're proposing that we try to move away from as we move toward um, some of these elements that you're proposing? Yeah, what, first one that comes to mind, that's a good question, is what's the difference, right? Um, the first one that comes to mind is traditionally, and even today, principals are treated as like the factor in school improvement. And, I, and they certainly have a huge influence, but when we treat, you know, kind of this hero uh, mindset um, with coming in, it's, it just, it puts way too much pressure and it's just not realistic for, for a leader. And so I seek more to lead through influence and that's influencing the teachers day-to-day -day, in classrooms through walks through you know coaching language so you know i kind of did an example previously of, of just noticing and naming what they're doing so i'm paraphrasing kind of my notes and what i've observed um, and then just posing questions and, and the goal too and this comes to maybe a second point is not just trying to fix the school but also trying to slow down and even withhold feedback you know i think we're i know i was trained to use a rubric and then you know attach it you know align it with practice and then and then score it or give them feedback on how they should improve and, and again you know we're in classrooms so little if you think about all the time that teachers spend teaching our feedback is often going to be um incomplete if not inaccurate I, i've lost count of the number of times i've 
said something and you know I, I just didn't have the context and I was wrong. So so traditionally, yeah, it's the principal fixes the school. Now it's more you seek to influence, you know, both teacher to teacher, but also the systems. Um, feedback, you know, is, is really more about building teachers' capacity for more self-directedness and just getting them supporting their thinking so that they don't have to be reliant on a principal uh, to fix everything. And eventually the, the ultimate goal is, you know, help teachers be leaders and learners is for them to become more self-directed and, and become a leader in the school. Maybe not positionally, but definitely from a practical standpoint, you know, they're a part of an instructional leadership team, for example, and they're help, that's what we did last year. I had seven or eight teachers helping me select a literacy curriculum resource and we came to one, but it wasn't any one person's decision or any one person's responsibility. And, you know, two, three heads make, you know, are better than one. And I would say the biggest change for me, and I speak from errors and mistakes, is letting go of some of that authority and, and sharing it with the teachers. Um, so that's, it's not a total let go of authority. You know, there's some decisions I have to make that I should, but for a lot of it, especially when it comes down to instruction, is supporting teachers' own decision making. Yeah, and you and you talked about feedback there, and and you know rethinking, uh, improving the quality of the feedback, and and communicating feedback is one of the, it's the second C and coach here, and um, you know that's a topic that's also been top of mind. For me recently is I've kind of navigated and observed the way that feedback is given and received in, in different contexts. And um, I think, you know, part of what you sort of described with the way feedback is often given in schools is essentially it's part of the job description of the principal that you have to give feedback to the teachers, right? But realistically, the whole purpose of it is to see it through their lens and what's actually useful to them. Yeah. So if I'm coming in at a certain time where I'm not really getting the whole picture or uh, I'm piling on some of my thoughts, even if they're reasonable enough thoughts at a time when they really can't do anything with it, it's not helpful. <laughs> it's just, it's adding to the pile of anxiety um, versus, you know, really thinking through, okay, what is going to be actionable or what is going to, you know, feedback, what's going to affirm what's working and then help us get to what's not, you know, because I've seen it also on, on the other hand, where uh, when, when there's these informal settings where feedback is provided, where it's unhelpful um, on the opposite end of the spectrum where it's generic surface level, it's, you know, and to me, yeah. I, I do think, you Hold know, on. providing somebody with meaningful substantive feedback and really putting thought into it is an act of respect, you know, in a professional setting, it's an act of professional respect to say, I really want to help you be better, but I need to see it through your point of view to understand what's going to help you be better. So talk to us about, you know, what, what your, uh, approaches here to improving the quality of feedback. Um, you, you know, you spoke a little bit, I think, about what some of the challenges are there, but, you know, how we're trying to transition to really doing better with that. There are so many books on feedback, right? And yeah, the thing about feedback, and I, I use communicate feedback very intentionally. Um, we'll often say we're going to give feedback, or we're going to deliver feedback as if it's 
some kind of a gift, right? And um, often those gifts are not appreciated or useful, like you said. And um, yeah, and a big one is that we don't understand the context of the classroom. So that really distorts, I think, what we're trying to communicate. I think of feedback like music, like if you hear a recording of something you played, you know, you play it back to yourself. That's feedback, right? Because it's it's an accurate representation of what was just happened. With the very complex nature of teaching and learning, what I feedback to the teacher is just through my lens. And like you said, I really need to understand first the teacher's decision making and thinking, and really to build trust too. I mean, just getting in classrooms and just being present and saying, "Hey, how you doing?" and and kind of lowering the the anxiety around a principal's presence. So I, I do that a lot. Um, I won't be taking any notes the first month, probably maybe a nice note this first month of school. I'll just be coming in and just visiting for 15 minutes and saying, I appreciate what you did here and um, really just reestablish that trust. But the, I, for me, the best feedback is the learning that occurs through my own process. It's when people will share with me some different data points and then say, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I noticed X, Y, and Z. What are your thoughts? Or how did you feel that aligned with the framework that we have? I just feel like it's so much more respectful and so much more supportive of their capacity to analyze and kind of get out of their loop a little bit. Sometimes they'll say things that they're doing really well and they, they've been teaching for 20 years. And, and I'll say something about, you know, their audience for writing, for example. And they're like, oh, you know, I do do that, you know? Um, and they, they forget because we, you know, we get so busy. So I, I feel like that's the best feedback. Not to say I'm not ever giving pe people set, you know, things that they need to improve on, you know, but anytime I try to give advice or make suggestions, I better be A, very sure that I'm accurate and B, um, that this isn't something that the teacher could figure out for themselves mm -hmm. because I, I just feel like that's more, and that's, um, why feedback's near the end. I want to try everything else first, build trust, confidence, um, prioritize whatever school goal you have and, and to affirm it before we get into, you know, here's how you might improve. But it's just, and it, it's funny because when I sent out, we sent out the book for reviews, um, you know, a couple of people, a couple of administrators were said, no, this is not, I don't want to write a review for it or, or a testimonial because this isn't, you know, this isn't what feedback is. And so there's, there's a transition happening, but I think with just how complex the world is getting, how complex instruction is, this seems to be the way the world is going. Yeah, I mean, there's almost uh, <laughs> a, a reality that there could be um, a defense mechanism built into some feedback where it is okay if we know that by you know, the history of the nature of feedback that many teachers have received, um, that they aren't really looking forward to receiving feedback because it's typically either unhelpful or there's something punitive about it or, you know, or whatever the case may be. So we know that they're not really eager to receive it. And I, as the leader, am not really eager to hear about their displeasure with it, I'm almost delivering them feedback that is 
not inviting a dialogue. <laughs> I'm just kind of going in and saying, here, you know, this, this, and this, okay, I'm going to, and, um, and, and I can see where there could be, there's hesitation on both sides, right? And what you're describing is a patient process for kind of saying, we're going to reestablish the context. And the only way to do that is by me really demonstrating to you authentically here that I have different intentions around this and that I want it to be um, something that, right, like, you know, there's the nature of like co-creating that improvement, inviting, well, I, I thought this, what did you think? You know, I could be completely wrong. It's something that stood out, right? <laughs> but but it's a, it's a it takes a lot of patience to get there because as you said, some teachers that have been teaching for 20 years, one, they're, they're very experienced. So they, they've heard it all and they've done it all. And two, um, they've probably had a lot of bad feedback. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, I have, I've seen it on Twitter when I posted something about supporting teachers and, and this kind of work and you know, get a few replies, like, you know, I don't know what happened, but I mean, they had some very negative experiences and, you know, you know, you, you feel for them because you don't, you don't know their context, but um, yeah, I'm just kind of wondering about right that requisite. I think patience for any oh, yeah. any school leader, right? Who's yeah. like, I wanna, I want to make feedback into a valuable experience here, but we know that everybody is coming with their prior baggage around this, and we can't necessarily jump right into it because we just need to reestablish what feedback is going to mean for us. Before we move on, let's hear from our sponsors. I was reading somewhere the average tenure of a principal right now is four years, and it might even have gone down. Mm -hmm. um, but I think as Reed G. Routman and other leaders have said, it takes five to seven years to see real school-wide change. You know, I'm going into year seven. I can, I can attest to that. It takes a long time to build trust and sustain it over time. I also think too, and I've done this with leaders when I've done, you know, so a workshop is I'll say, just diagram every grade or discipline that is in your school, you know, math, literacy, science, social studies, or grades one, two, three, four, five. So then just mark like as a, like a, a table, how many years you've spent teaching in those grade levels or departments. And you will see the vast majority of grades or subjects, you don't have any experience teaching in. And the goal of that is just to show you other leaders, you really need to be coming in as a learner. Um, I have never taught primary level. I was always fifth, sixth grade. It, it took me a while to learn, you know, the first grade curriculum, the kindergarten curriculum. And that, you know, really coming in with that way then helps me then help them. But um, it's tricky, especially nowadays with turnover even increasing. You know, how do you... How do you make that long-term commitment? And it, it takes it takes at least a year, probably, mm -hmm. to to establish some level of trust that what you said was what you meant, and it, right? <laughs> because that's the the other piece too is uh, you know as the feedback giver, if we're uncomfortable and we're hedging or we're saying something that's you know, perhaps a sugar-coated version of what we really mean, but when we go back to our desk, we have to write things down as they are. Um, and it's, you know, that, that was one of the things that in different management roles I you know, had to work my way toward was saying, I just, I'm going to say what I mean and say it 
you know, in the best way possible. But I, if it slightly errs on the side of being a little direct, um, I'd rather have that than it be ambiguous or unclear or have this person be surprised later when I say this wasn't really, a, you know, you didn't do a great job on this um, when oh, well, I thought you said it was good. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's an awesome strategy just to preface it with, hey, here's what I've noticed, uh, but please correct me if I'm wrong. And then you communicate what you've noticed and then you're maybe your concern. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, not giving feedback can be almost worse than giving incorrect feedback because then the teacher has no idea where you stand and then evaluations are, are a surprise. Or I had one teacher say, I just, I'm, I'm losing respect for the leader because all they ever say is good job. I have nothing to offer you. And it's like, well, aren't you curious about what's going on in my classroom? Or I want you to know. And so, yeah, I mean, I agree for us. I think erring on the side of being wrong versus nothing at all is a better approach, kind of a bias toward action. Um, and, I, and I tend to be more nice than direct. I mean, that's just my nature. So I know that about myself and I know I need to be more assertive sometimes with what I see. Um, and one thing I do, is I just ask the now to ask the teachers after a, a visit, you know, that's non-evaluative, I'll, I'll walk, I'll say, was there anything you'd like to know from me? You know, maybe after a couple of visits, you know, is there anything you want to know um, about what I'm seeing? I'm happy to give it to you. And um, if they want the direct feedback, the last, but at least now I'm invited to mm -hmm. do that yeah and, and and one of the key things what you just said that we all we all want to work for someone who has something to offer us yeah. right um it, it might take some time to get to be in, in that kind of root rhythm and routine of it, it's all working out but we all want to be learning uh if we're educators and we're in education um we of course prioritize learning so we, you know, I want to know that my supervisor, my colleagues know some things I don't know and I can gain from that, but you know, it's a process. Um, so one of the other things, you know, that, that was kind of interesting to me as I've been thinking about your work and your writing and, and a lot of the things that you prioritize, um, it kind of came to mind based on a recent interview I did with Sean Slade, who has a a new book out called Questioning Education. And one of the things he references in the book as one of the inspirations for, uh, you know, kind of one of his critical questions is Simon Sinek and his book and his TED talk around start with why. And um, in Sean's case, he applies that largely to, you know, keeping that why really centered in our solar system of education and, and going back and saying, why are we doing this? You know, what's the purpose of education? What does that tell us about why we're doing what we're doing? If what we're doing isn't driving us toward what we define the purpose as, we shouldn't do it. We should do something else. Um, one of the things about that is, of course, we all have to have our whys, but one, it's about having that reference point to say, when in doubt, let me go back to mm -hmm. this thing and remind myself of, okay, good, let me take an action. And, and with you, the thing that's a clear through line um, in your work and your approach, you know, even as a principal, which is not always what you're going to see from principal, it's literacy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's saying literacy skills are that through line to all the curriculum, all the subject areas. And so I could kind of see you in that sense of saying, all right, when in doubt about what we're doing in this area or that area, 
let's go back to that reference point and let's consider, are we building that strong foundation? Um, and I wanted to give you a chance to kind of to talk about that, how you have continued to bring that with you as you've moved from teaching into administration and into even writing books on leadership to really have literacy as that emphasis. Yeah, you said it well, Ross. It, it's the through line through all subjects. It's the rising tide will raise all ships. You know, if, if, anytime I see a school with strong math scores, um, typically, typically you'll see them with strong literacy scores too. You know, I think every school should make literacy a priority, not because it, I think it's important, but it just, it's a real issue. And I, one reason we did kind of the coach framework C-O-A-C-H, the O is organized around a priority. And after you've established trust, um, you really need to have like a language in which to speak with teachers about. You need to name some practices and, and literacy strategies that, um, so you're, you're on the same page, you know, you have that same framework. And keeping coming back to it, um, I'll carry that framework with me when I go in classrooms and I'll look at it sometimes and then uh, use those terms. And I think I think that um, connection, uh, language skills, you know, speaking, listening, reading, writing, it is it does need to be ever present, and it's not often enough. And you know, and, and I like to think about it in different contexts, like some of the um, research around uh, you know English learners and their it's if their scores are low in math it has nothing to do with their aptitude for math it's because they're not really able to engage in all of the classroom discourse because they're still learning the language and so they're missing all of this other stuff <laughs> this description about the subject that has not that's not about the subject itself and it's okay how do we strategically scaffold that and how do we be mindful of that and understand that this all goes together and you know, the same is true of students for whom English is their first language. Kids are learning, right? And some of it is academic terminology that's not necessarily intuitive. And do we know what that means? And what does that tell me about, um, you know, whether it's math or social studies or science or anything else that if I, if I don't know the vocabulary and the grammar and, you know, the things that we're using in this class, I am not going to get the subject matter, even if it's subject matter that I, you know, intuitively would understand. Yeah, and that and, and that's a good point too. It, it pairs our language from the framework, you know, descriptions of good practice. It's actually, if you pair it with some shared beliefs around literacy or whatever subject you're focused on, that everyone agrees to through like a Google form survey. We all agree that, for example, readers, uh, good readers reading well also impacts writing and vice versa. You know, there's a reciprocal relationship there. If we all agree to it, then I can, you know, maybe up the ante a little bit in, in terms of expectations to say, hey, I noticed, you know, reading and writing seem to be kind of separate disciplines. What are your thoughts on that? And that actually led us to recently doing a curriculum acquisition this past year. We reviewed several resources but by establishing that language through the framework, through our shared beliefs, we kind of knew what we were looking for. I think if we had gone in without any kind of collective understanding of what good literacy instruction is about, we would just probably pick, you know, one person, staff member said, we probably would have just picked what everyone else was picking in the area, you know, and just, you know, well, it must be good. 
And I, I'm so thankful we used our beliefs to really drive, it almost serves like a lens in which to think about, you know, what resources and activities we want to do. And we ended up picking a resource that really works well for our beliefs. We just had our PD yesterday, um, our onboarding of the resource and, you know, everyone's like, yeah, this is great. You know, and we didn't, there was just not a lot of resistance that you might see. And I know I've seen, uh, because it's, we know what we believe and we believe works. And now we're using a resource to, to extend our work and to improve our work. A lot of times in, in Regi Routman has said this and Judy Wallace, her colleague, uh, schools will pick a resource and that will shape their beliefs and practices. You know, for example, if the resource doesn't have any plan for independent reading, which I've seen, independent reading goes away, classroom libraries go away because it just isn't valued in the resource and school right. stuff to value it too. Yeah, and, and so the reading piece, uh, it's actually a great transition point because I, I do want to talk a little bit about your uh, your, your resist the script, your, your newer ebook. And um, I kind of want to talk through the lens of, uh, in addition to having known each other for a number of years since Matt was writing his first couple of books with ASCD, um, we also have both been involved in a, an online uh, writing cohort program called Shift 30 for 30. And um, the big thing to know about this is uh, it, it's around the concept of building in public, right? Yeah. And it's writing and it's sharing your thoughts as they evolve and it's engaging with the marketplace. And I think of this as so important in education in particular because of the state of the education discourse, the fact that if you're online and you're on social media, uh, it's primarily dominated by people who don't work in education and you see things, and this is why reading steps uh, jumps out to me, kind of ridiculous sentiments like, I've learned more on Twitter than I ever learned in school. And I'm like, well, you learned to read in school, so if you, right, then yeah. you wouldn't even be able to be on Twitter in the first place, things like that. But, um, but that's why I think it's so important for educators to be out there, to be writing, sharing their thoughts, talking about what they're working through, showing kind of the nuts and bolts of it, in a public forum where anybody can see it, right? Because of course, once you write your books, the people who are going to buy them, read them are educators as they should, but that's all hidden from the view of the public. And there are things that the public needs to know that contextualizes. Um, and this also goes back to, you know, that part about the affirm promising practice and understand what's actually going on before you. I mean, I see a lot of people that get a lot of engagement on content that's schools should do this, this, and this. And I say, well, schools are doing those things. Like, you know, that's all stuff that we're doing now. You're talking about 20, 30 years ago, and but nobody is really curious enough to actually know what's going on and there's much we need to improve as always but there's also much that has changed mm -hmm. um so i guess i kind of wanted to ask you you know what that sort of means to you because it also connects to me something that i work a lot with of course is helping schools just understand both I call it their obligation and their opportunity around proactive communication, you know, communicating to your parents, your families, the fact that a lot of times when there is friction and conflict, it comes from just, there was a lack of effort to inform people who should have been informed, right? And a lack of showing them that it was important to you as a school or as a district 
for them to know what was going on. And then eventually something will happen, whether it's a, a true or manufactured controversy and things go awry, that all could have been you know, avoided by just better communication practices to begin with. So I, I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on that, what you, you know, your daily writing when you're putting stuff out there. And of course, most people who gravitate to it are going to be educators, but anybody could come and see that and say, this guy's a principal and this is what he's working on and this is what's important. And it gives me some understanding of what's really happening in that job. Yeah, it's been neat to be involved at the same time with you with this, with this initiative. And I've, I've learned a lot about writing um, online. And I think if I were to go back in the classroom, I would my whole writing approach would be very different, um, thinking about the online component, but um, yeah, kind of practicing in public and, and not worrying too much about the opinions or, you know, the feedback. I think it's pretty forgiving, unless you're putting out some pretty controversial stuff. You know, it's, it's actually a pretty safe place to, to, to post ideas, but the, it's funny that book, The Resist the Script, um, it was actually based on a tweet, uh, Twitter thread. And it was just, here's five questions we've been using when we've been reviewing the curriculum like I mentioned before, boom, 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 boom. And two or the three of the questions weren't even mine. I, you know, I cited whose questions they were and it, it had a lot of impressions and a lot of comments. And then one actual teacher said, you should put this in a book. And I'm like, there's the signal, you know, <laughs> but if right. I hadn't practiced in public, I probably wouldn't, you know, I would just chalk it up to choose just another tool that we use in school. And so, yeah, I put it on Kindle and um, it's more of a toolkit, and but yeah, that feedback to to know what what people need, I guess, especially in education, is very helpful. And the real time, you know, adaptive nature of it, which is you know one of the sometimes valid criticisms, is okay. You know, the the economy and the workforce and the future of work, right, evolves at such a fast rate and you know, how do we keep up with preparing students? And yeah. part of that is, do we have kind of dynamic content like this to say, all right, here's something that's happening right now. Let's put it together and let's get it out to people who can use it um, yeah. versus, you know, getting it out in five years where it's something else is going on at that point. And you have these, these five critical questions. And this really is about engaging teachers in that process yeah. of, of adapting and, you know, developing the literacy curriculum and, you know, one of the ones that really jumped out at me, um, you know, which is also related to something I, I spoke about with Sean Slade recently, which was, would there be a sense of joy in the classroom? And I, I was kind of talked about how we often talk about, you know, student engagement or do students like school and like their learning. And, you know, we have to kind of take a step back first and say, well, as a system, you know, what are some of the things we're doing that are um, kind of stripping the joy from teaching? And therefore, you know, the students are going to respond to what teachers are doing. <laughs> so if a teacher yeah. looks like they're having a good time and they're enjoying it, then the students are going to feel that. If a teacher seems like they're kind of worn out, burnout, overly restricted by punitive guidelines, then the students are going to feel that too, right? Um, but, you know, I really like this thought of, is this curriculum going to generate joy, right? Which is a, that really positive emotion. I mean, why, why did you choose to include that? Just observing teachers either maybe in another school or just online. They're just, 
with all the testing and evaluations and standards and just that seems to be the thing that's been missing and continues to be not considered. Um, so adding, we actually added this question when we were reviewing the different resources and, and we just try to envision, you know, would kids really get engaged with this? Would teachers really enjoy teaching with this resource? And it's really hard to measure, but it's kind of like, like you said, you can, you can if you see it, you know what it is. And, um, and that was a real helpful criteria beyond just does it align with standards and expectations? You know, it's, it's the kids get choice in what they want to read. Is there read a lot of time? Um, is there some autonomy where teachers can make some decisions? And um, that it was really helpful for us to talk about, you know, as we went through that process, hopefully get back to more of it. Right. And, yeah. And it is, you know, potentially an outcome of, of one of the preceding questions, which goes back to this entire, you know, concept of communication around, you know, would students know what they're learning and why it is important? And again, like that thing that we know is important that we don't always get around to it, right? To saying, okay, like, are we ensuring that, um, that this is made relevant to them? And ultimately so much of that is just being intentional about showing them that we care that they know and they understand why. And again, like if I understand why I'm learning something and I can see the value in it and it's exciting, then yeah, I might feel some joy around that. If not, then why would I? Yeah, I remember your essay that you wrote in this, in this cohort, um, you know, but you got straight A's, but you know, you didn't, one of you, if your brothers didn't really, only one of you enjoyed school, right, right. you know, and it's kind of indicative of our assessment system too, of you get straight A's in school and not enjoy it, you know, what's, what's happening there. So yeah, that, that, we, we don't want to just teach for today, but we don't really want to teach for tomorrow and you know, build lifelong learners who just enjoy the process of reading and writing. So, right. Well, Matt, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. Um, where can our listeners find you? I mean, you're active on Twitter. You have a Substack. Tell them about that, and so they can uh, look you up. Uh, so it's on Twitter. It's at Read by Example, and um, you can give me a follow there. Uh, or readbyexample.substack.com are the two best places. I also have a website, mattrenwick.com, a contact form if you have any questions about the books or just interested in, in more support in, in your work in your schools. Um, I, like I said, I, I'm still a principal. I still do the work and um, just trying to find ways to help others uh, enjoy it and be more successful. Excellent. Well, we will put the information about Matt's books in the show notes and where to find them. Um, so all of our listeners can check those out. And listeners, make sure you subscribe to the Authority Podcast for more in-depth author interviews and visit thepodcast.network online to learn about all of our other shows. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash B-E 
to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E.